This episode will focus on the phrase, this generation, as spoken by our Savior in Matthew 24, 34. And the verse goes like this. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Ken, I searched the term this generation in my, and I did it with the KJV, and I found it to be in 20 verses within the New Testament. Now, some would have us believe that 19 of these 20 verses mean the audience that's being spoken to. But there's one verse, the one we just read, for some reason, is supposed to mean something different. Yeah. Can you help us make sense of this? Why is this controversial? I don't even know. Part of me is like, why are we doing this video? Why is this yeah. verse so controversial? <laughs> You're asking a good question. Um, the video is only being done because it's being questioned. Um, if there was no bias, if people weren't uh, looking for the Bible to say something it wasn't, we really wouldn't be doing this video. In fact, I wanted to say that at the outset, that this is part of our series that we're doing with biblical themes. Um, but really, this isn't a biblical theme. So I would put a big asterisk by this one. This really isn't part of our... When I think of biblical themes, I think of like trumpets and wilderness and um, harlots and beasts. And um, these are the mountains, land and sea. These are biblical themes that we see in symbolism in the Bible. Coming the on the clouds. Coming on the clouds, yes. These are biblical themes, and they're so fun to study, and you really see how they're used in prophetic language and how they're applied in different applications. And this isn't one of them. This is actually just a phrase that means the generation alive at the, while the person speaking said it. Um, that is very simple, actually. But the, the reason we have to do the video um, is because of the ramifications of this uh, phrase in Matthew 24, 34. The ramifications are that if you read through the Olivet Discourse, which is just a fancy way of saying a discussion Jesus had on the Mount of Olives, Olivet means of, of Mount of Olives, um, the ramifications are gigantic because Jesus gave a timestamp. He gave a specific timestamp of, he says, when all these things happen in Matthew 24, 34, and you have to go up and read all the things that he just listed, which is like, things that we have heard so often that are uh, for our future. That's the popular teaching today. So you have, you know, famines and earthquakes and perilous times will come and, and uh, all these things that he's listing, we have heard so often that these are in our future. So when he actually gives a, a very clear timestamp, people say, well, since we know this is in our future, this can't mean that. And they're not even questioning whether or not that's accurate, whether or not maybe it's not in this generation. So, so all I'm going to do in this video, go ahead. So that's a form of eisegesis then. <laughs> Classic. Classic eisegesis. Very good way of saying it, which is taking outside thoughts and imposing it on the text. Rather than, you know, I always say this. We sh and, and by the way, folks that are following our video series, um, this is what I mean by biblical theology. It, it, that sounds so easy, but really it's letting the Bible speak for itself. And wherever the Wherever the chips fall, that's where we fall. Um, I think you and I, Jimmy, are both in the same boat. We once didn't take this approach. We both were a futurist in this. And um, that's what we heard, and it sounded good. And when we looked at it, it didn't work. And this is one of the reasons why, is these timestamps. So all I'm going to do in this video is I'm just going to show you how the way the Bible uses it in other places 
And then I'm going to bombard us real quickly at the end here with a bunch of commentaries to show that before the mid-1800s, this really wasn't a controversy. So It's only become a controversy. So this isn't new? Or no, this, this is, is new? The controversy is new. Ah. Uh, at, as of the mid-1800s, really. Because before that, it was very well understood what this common phrase, this generation, means. What so, else happened in the mid-1800s? <laughs> oh, I remember now. <laughs> you want to tell us? Was that would that be the advent of dispensationalism? You nailed it. Okay. Yeah, right. Dispensationalism. Um, we can get into the historical um, workings of dispensationalism another time, but with with John Nelson Darby and one of his prized students, C.I. Schofield, with his Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, he was, by the way, Schofield was the first one to put study notes in the text. So people took it as gospel. They took it as part of the Bible. And he thought, wow, if this is in here. So when he said, this is talking about this, they said, it's in the Bible. And he, of course, influenced D.L. Moody and Dallas Theological Seminary, and it swept the, the nation. And um, ever since then, these have been confusing verses. Before that, it really wasn't. Okay. Well, let, let's look at the first mention principle. We all know what that is, I believe. If you're confused, we did this with the sun, moon, and stars. See how it's used in the beginning? Genesis 7, 1 says this, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. It's obviously talking about the generation alive when Noah's alive, the referencing the generation alive when Noah lived. These folks weren't righteous. Your family was. Going to our next verse, Psalm 71, 18. So we're going to kind of See this as throughout the Bible. It just means the same thing. It's very simple. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to everyone that is to come. That's Psalm 71, 18. And this is a reference to the generation alive when this psalm was written. Next in Psalm 95, 10. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in the heart, in their heart. And they have not known my ways. This is a reference to the generation alive uh, during the wilderness wanderings. So if you go back and look at the wilderness wanderings, it's that generation. And by the way, this is going to be important for later. Notice on this verse in Psalm 95.10 that it references this generation as 40 years. So there gives us our definition of how long a generation is. Making our way to the Gospels now, Matthew 11.16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children in the, sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. Jesus is speaking here. And he's saying, this generation is very immature. He just got done talking about John the Baptist. And he said, this generation is, is like children sitting in the markets. He's talking about the people that are right before him. He's correcting them. Very simple. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 41 and 42, Jesus is speaking to those who are missing who he is. He says, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. He's talking about Jonah, the story of Jonah. Very next verse, verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in this generation, in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12, 41 and 42. And so, what Jesus is saying here is these folks were faithful with less. Um, the people of Nineveh had Jonah. They didn't have Jesus there. They didn't have the Son of God there. They had Jonah, a really 
reluctant prophet of God. <laughs> and the Queen of Sheba traveled a great distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon and was changed when she heard it. And these two, the, the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, would rise up with this generation and, and condemn them because they have a greater proof than, than Jonah and Solomon. And the proof is Jesus himself standing there. And he says, these are the folks that are going to condemn you because they had an opportunity to hear truth. And when they did, they accepted it. Matthew 23, 36, this is one chapter before our, um, our, our verse in, in question. And Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, he eviscerates the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He goes down and tells them all, you're a generation of snakes and of vipers. And he goes on, you're like a whited sepulcher. You're full of dead man's bones on the inside, you know, all these things. And he says to them in verse 36, verily I say unto you, all these things, all what things? All the things he just talked about. All these things shall come upon this generation. Now, I want to take just a few moments and talk through how this was taken in the past. So this is going to be a little bit of reading, but I have it on the screen here. And this is from Matthew Henry, and I've also noted the years that they lived, so it would be easier for people to be able to see when this change take, took place in the mid-1800s. Matthew Henry, I think most folks believe him to be a very sound mind and a very respected commentator. 1662 to 1714, here's what he said. As to these things, the wars, seduction, and persecutions, we talked about all the things before verse 34. By the way, let me also say this. Uh, these are all commentators that are speaking on Matthew 24, 34. So I'm not taking these from other passages. I didn't, I don't think, I didn't put that on my slide, but all of these are on their commentaries on Matthew 24, 34. So he says, as to these things, the wars, seductions, and persecutions, here foretold, and especially the ruin of the Jewish nation, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled, Matthew 24, 34. There are those now alive that shall see Jerusalem destroyed and the Jewish church brought to an end. Because it might seem strange, he backs it with a solemn asservation. Uh, he says, Verily I say unto you, you may take my word for it. These things are at the door. Christ often speaks of the nearness of that desolation, the more to affect people and to quicken them to prepare for it. So he's just simply saying, Jesus was warning the people right there that there was a great judgment coming and the Lord was going to use the Roman Jewish war to end uh, the temple age. So that it was no longer even feasible to be of an Orthodox or we would say faithful Judaic age, uh, old covenant Jew. It, it ended with the death of Jesus and it was uh, certainly completely destroyed at the, the destruction of the temple. Uh, the pulpit commentary, 1909, they just, and I, I think most people respect the pulpit commentary, they simply say, this generation, our Lord's assertion, has given rise to skeptical observations. Now, notice they are in 1909, and they are now speaking of the skeptics. They have crossed over the, the mid-1800s. So you'll notice that in our commentaries, we get past the 1850s, people have to start talking about the skeptics because that's a, that's a new thing. So they say, our Lord's assertion has given rise to skeptical observations, as if his prophecy had failed. Alfred has endeavored to remove objections by taking, and then there's some Greek words here that don't translate very well in this, uh, as equivalent to this, basically generation and talking about race, a race or family of people. That's people's argument, by the way. Uh, I'm sure we'll see in the comments of this video. People will say, aha, generation means race. And what that means is there's going to be a kind of people that they're alive when these things happen. 
and people can try to explain it away. Jesus is talking about the contemporaries of his conversation. So this this is what they're addressing is people trying to cite these things. Well, you know, not to throw you off, but the verse bef- the verse before in Matthew twenty four thirty three says, "So likewise ye, when ye shall see the all these things, know ye that is near, even at the doors." You just read that. So he's saying, he's talking to that group of people right there. Yes. Not yep. a dis and and another argument you you might be bringing this up, but I was mm-hmm. seeing that if Jesus was really talking about a future one, he would why wouldn't he say so likewise they when they shall see these things, they will know that it's at the doors. Barely like saying that generation yep. shall yep. not pass. You know, absolutely, I completely agree with you, and. um these are called near and far demonstratives, this generation, that generation. We'll get into that in a little bit towards the end here. Um, absolutely good call. Verse 33 also has, and I have this on the end of our slides too. We'll get into this in a second. It says these things in verse 33. You see that? These things. Yeah. Which means everything he just said. Yeah. Right. So they're connected. So who, who's going to see these things? The people listening to him. So that's even more further. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. So our pulpit commentary goes on to say, his examples, however, are not unassailable. In other words, what they're saying there is um, you can try to say this means something else, but you can't throw off what he was trying to say. They're unassailable. Though such use is certain, certainly classical, but, it is the, at the, but at the same time, it is unlikely that Christ should thus indefinitely postpone a period of infinite importance to his hearers. But there is no necessity for assuming any unusual meaning in the term. This generation... It's plain and obvious reference to the contemporaries of the speaker. That's exactly what we're saying. Or those who shall live some 30 or 40 years longer. This period would bring them to the siege of Jerusalem. And remembering that Christ has drawn no definite line between this crisis and the final consummation. We are justified in regarding all these things as meaning primarily the signs preceding or accompanying the downfall of the city. They're talking about Jerusalem being destroyed in the Roman Jewish war. And so they're saying, this is obvious. People try to say that it's something different, but it's, it's obvious. And just so folks understand, what uh, I don't want to go too quick over this. When Jesus is speaking these words, for those who may not know, it's approximately AD 30. Uh, AD meaning in the year of our Lord, 30. So you're, you're sitting here just before the death of Jesus on the cross. And he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. Well, the things that he's just discussed, we know have happened. Now, ironically, people would say, we know these things haven't happened, but the book of Acts would have a lot to say against that. The book of Acts actually documents that these things have happened. So what was the culmination? What was the question? It, the question is, what's the destruction of the temple in verse number one and two? And um, in, in verse number three, what, what's the, when are these things? When are these things? What's the sign of these things? And Jesus starts saying the sign and then when it's happening, he says it's going to happen in this generation. Well, a generation is 40 years, according to the Bible. Well, the destruction of the temple was A.D. 70, exactly 40 years after Jesus. I mean, we should be we should be championing this prophecy. We should be holding up our Bibles and saying, look at what Jesus said 40 years before it happened. But because we have bias that we don't think these things have happened. We shy away from it and say, well, he must have meant something else. 
instead of just saying, I can't believe he got a bullseye on this, it's literally 40 years before the Romans sieged Jerusalem and destroyed it. (laughs) Exactly when he said. But, you know, I've heard other people also say, well, yeah, it happened, but it's history keeps repeating itself. Prophecies keep repeating themselves. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You know, we do, we do, here's the thing. We do see some double fulfillment in the Bible. Uh, for example, we see Isaiah getting a reference to um, uh, a, a boy being born, uh, and that was immediately fulfilled in his son, but we see the complete fulfillment in Christ. Now, how do I, how, this is the thing, Jimmy, this is what people have to get. How do I know that's a double fulfillment? Here's the answer. Because the Bible tells me, the Bible tells me that's a double fulfillment. Here's another one. Uh, in Hosea, it talks about Jesus saying, t- speaking of Israel, that I have taken my son out of Egypt. But in Matthew, Matthew applies that to Jesus, even though nobody in Hosea's day would ever even have thought of that as being a prophecy. It was just, he was referencing Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew applies that and says, I'm now taking my actual son out of Egypt when they came back after Herod's death. He said, it's fulfilled what the prophet said. So in a way, that's kind of a double fulfillment, I guess you could say. Now, how do I know that? I know that because the Bible identifies it. But when the Bible closed at the end of the book of Revelation, we have no further revelation. We cannot then assume there's a double revelation in the Bible with no textual evidence. That is just making things up. We only know if something's a double fulfillment or near and far prophecy, if it's stated in the text. So you can't just take a prophecy that has an actual fulfillment. Like, in other words, we wouldn't go to the references in the Old Testament that say Jesus is to be born in Bethlehem. And then we see he's born in Bethlehem and say, well, I bet it will be fulfilled again. There's going to be another Messiah born in Bethlehem. Right. Because the canon is closed. We don't have the authority to say, well, Sure, he was born in Bethlehem, but it's probably going to happen again. You know, double fulfillment. It's in the Bible. No, you only have the text that we have. If you see something that has a near and far prophecy, it will state that in the text. Again, the people will get sick of me saying it. Biblical theology. You can't get theology outside of the Bible. That's what folks are trying to do. Let's go to the next one. John Wesley, 1703 to 1791. He says it very, very plainly in his commentary in Matthew 24, 34. He states, this generation of men now living shall not pass till all these things be done. The expression implies that great part of that generation would be, that great part of that generation would be passed away, but not the whole. Just so it was for the city and temple were destroyed 39 or 40 years after. This is pretty common stuff. Here's Albert Barnes. I appreciate him. He's got a commentary called Barnes Notes. Here's what he said. This age this race of people, a generation is about 30 or 40 years. The destruction of Jerusalem took place about 40 years after this was spoken. I mean, it's just over and over again. Joseph Benson, 1749 to 1821, said this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled, hereby evidently showing that he had been speaking all this while only the calamities coming on the Jews and the destruction of Jerusalem. It is to me a wonder, says Bishop Newton, how any man can refer part of the foregoing, foregoing discourse to the destruction of Jerusalem and part of it towards the end of the world or any event, distant event, or any other distant event when it is said so positively here in the conclusion. All these things 
shall be fulfilled in this generation. And it seems as if our Lord had been aware of some such misapplication of his words by adding yet greater force and emphasis to his affirmation, Matthew 24, 35, which is the next verse. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So he was, <laughs> Joseph Benson saying, it's almost as if the Lord knew people were going to scoff at his prophecy that all these things would happen in 30, 40 years, which is why he added in verse 35, hey, don't forget, heaven and earth could pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's, it's more likely that everything passes away before my words are wrong. In other words, Jesus doubled down on this. And he did it the verse after everybody's questioning. Robert Hawker, 1753 to 1827. He says, the darkening of the sun and moon and the falling of the stars are certainly meant in a figurative way. Well, thank you, Robert, for agreeing with our last video. Uh, and, and we're intended to imply that on the dispersion of the Jews, those awful events should follow, which the prophet foretold. When the Lord would cause the sun to go dawn at noon, see the whole prophecy, Amos 8, 8 to the end. Neither when the Lord speaks of the son of man coming to judgment could be meant that immediately after the destruction of the temple would be the day of final judgment, but rather the judgment on the Jews. And that's what we're saying at this whole time. This is a covenant lawsuit on the Jewish people. This is the, the reckoning of their disobedience of the Mosaic covenant. He says, uh, for rejecting the Lord of life and glory and of the sending of his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, the gathering of his elect implies his ministers going forth to preach the gospel which with the effect is spoken of by both the prophet and the apostle, Isaiah 27, 13, Revelation 14, 6. And the limitation of those events to then generation, to the then generation in which Christ predicted them is a plain proof to what they referred. For it was not full 40 years after when Jerusalem was destroyed, so that consequently many lived to see the accomplishment. So this is very common. This generation, again, Greek, the problem is whether Jesus here is referring to the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem or to the second coming and the end of the world. If the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a literal fulfillment. Folks always want to talk about taking the Bible literally. Well, here's a great example. You can take this literally. And by the way, let me just say real quick, I had somebody uh, comment on one of our last videos. They said, I take the Bible literally, um, and therefore I don't take it the way that you're saying in the sun, moon, and stars. And I said, well, I talked, I asked him about if Jesus was the lamb of God, how much wool he produced, obviously. And I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just pointing out that none of us take the Bible literally in that sense. And he said, no, no, I take the Bible literally. The Bible literally means that he was the lamb of God, according to the old Testament, that he was a sacrifice sufficient for us. Well, that, that's, that's called literarily. That's, that's according to the literature. That's how I take it. Yeah. In other words, it's how the author intends it to be meant. Literally means that Jesus was literally a lamb with four legs. And I use that as an example because no one believes that. So when you say you take the Bible literally, maybe what you should say is I take the Bible as the author intends it to be taken, which is exactly how I'm trying to take it. Mm -hmm. So he says, he, in this case, there, that member, one of our rules, I don't have it down. One of our rules was to identify the, the figures of speech. Mm -hmm. This generation is not a figure of speech. And so it is to be taken literally. That's the whole point of identifying figures of speech. Yeah. If the destruction of, if the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a literal fulfillment. In the Old Testament, a generation was reckoned as 40 years. This is the natural way to take Matthew 24, 34. Uh, as of Matthew 24, 33, all things, meaning the same in this verse, he's connecting that. 
So let, let me talk about something real quick. I think this is important. I want to talk about the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. All right. I've got a slide for this so people can see it. What is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy? Well, you see in the picture there, you see, uh, you see this um, you know, Texas cowboy over here, and he's got his guns, and he's painting on the, the broad side of a barn. What it basically is, is, is you have a, a story of a, a Texas a farmer here, a cowboy, and he's going over to the broad side of a barn, and he's taking his guns, and he's shooting randomly. And he goes over, and he sees where, wherever the clusters are put together, and he goes over, and he paints targets around them. And then he calls people over and says, look, bullseye on all these targets. But the thing is, it's not a very impressive shooting if you draw the targets on after you shoot. It's really only impressive if you have the targets before and then shoot at the targets. Here's from investopedia.com. It says, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is a logical fallacy based on the metaphor of a gunman shooting at the side of a barn, then drawing targets around the bullet hole clusters to make it look like he hit the target. It illustrates how people look for similarities, ignoring differences, and do not account for randomness. So I, I like to point this out because the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is kind of what modern-day pop theology is doing. They say, well, we know this means this. They start with that. Rather than saying, I'm going to look at the text and see what it says, since we know this means this, I'm going to move the target over here and say, see, we nailed it. And let me give an example of that. Um, uh, in, in, well, I'll get to that in a second. So I'm going to go out of order. Let me, let me read Matthew 16, 28. I'm going to, I'm going to get to CI Schofield in a second, but let me remind us of Matthew 16, 28. Jesus spoke this way often about this generation. He says in Matthew 16, 28, verily I say unto you, there be some standing here, which shall not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So, He's talking to this generation. It's the people that are standing in front of him. It, they will not taste of that. Some of them will die. Some of them, you know, will die of natural causes or in an accident. But he says there's some that are here that will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Those are people that are standing in front of him. Here's another one in Luke 23, 28. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, this is when, by the way, paint the picture for Luke 23. Remember yeah. when Simon the Cyrene was helping Jesus with the cross? Mm -hmm. And it says the women were wailing at the sight of what was going on in that moment where Jesus had already been flogged. He'd already been whipped with a cat of nine tails. And Simon the Cyrene is called over and Jesus is trying to carry the cross and he keeps falling. My savior keeps falling over that pain. And they call over Simon and they're mourning and they're weeping for Jesus. In that moment, Jesus looks back at them and says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, if you read past this in Luke 23, 28, he goes on to describe the coming judgment. Hmm. Okay? So, so he says, so what sense would that make to make this generation another generation besides the one he's talking to? If he says, weep for yourselves, why would we be weeping for ourselves, Lord? Because 2,000 years from now, the rapture is going to happen. Yeah. No, weep for yourselves, guys. You know why? Because the Great Tribulation is coming, and it did happen in the Roman-Jewish War in 66 to 70 AD, AD 66 to 70. Documented history. It's happened. We should embrace this amazing prophecy. But you know what, Ken? I never heard of AD 70 all my church-going days. I didn't. I didn't either. So I grew up in a distant church. I, I didn't either. I would, I would venture to say that most Christians 
have never really heard about it. Yeah. And it's, it's so important to understand this. Yeah. It's very well documented history. If if this is, if this is new information to folks, I understand them pushing back against it and saying, this is new information. I'm not sure about this. And I totally understand that. And I welcome that. When I say I welcome folks pushing back, I mean, I get it. If somebody told me this information before I had fully understood all this, I'd have said, you're wrong because I know this is in the future. But the reality is that that's a very recent contemporary belief. The historical belief is what I'm talking about here. Um, so, yeah, I, I get it. We are not educated on first century historic history at all. And um, if we were, we really wouldn't even be talking about this. It would be pretty common. I want to also say that if you misunderstand the term this generation, you end up in the place that C.S. Lewis was. Now, I'm going to read this quote from C.S. Lewis, and I will say, I am not certain if C.S. Lewis was saying this to be a provocateur, as he sometimes does, or if he meant this. Uh, I need to study um, more around this statement to see how he meant it. But this is what he said concerning the phrase this generation. He says, but there were, there is worse to come. Say what you like. We shall be told the apocalyptic beliefs of the, fir- uh, uh, of the first Christians have been proved to be false. It is clear from uh, the New Testament that they are all expecting the second coming in their own lifetime. And worse still, they had a reason. And one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And he was wrong. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. It is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Yet, how teasing. Also, that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and of that hour, no man know. Uh, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance grow side by side. Uh, that they stood thus in the mouth of Jesus himself. Now, I'm not sure if C.S. Lewis was saying that to say, hey, guys, obviously it's not that because Jesus is not wrong. Or if he meant that, I'm not sure which one. Well, but either way, his point is well taken. You know, he might have said that when he was still an atheist. If I remember right, he was an atheist and found belief in Christ because he was setting out to prove himself right. And it's funny because I've read many atheists using this verse as the reason for the proof of their belief. See, Jesus was wrong. He's obviously saying all this is going to happen, and and uh, it didn't. Yep. He's, exactly. he's a false prophet. Yep because they're mistakenly believing that he's talking about his second coming and he's not. I believe in the second coming of Christ and it has not happened yet. When Christ's second coming happens, the dead will rise and the graves will be emptied and we'll live with him forevermore. And that that's the meeting in the air. That's the real meeting in the air. We'll live with him forevermore. This is talking about his coming in judgment. It's old Testament language that we use all the time. It's the coming in judgment. And Jesus was coming in judgment on the, uh, apostate Jews, according to the um, cur- curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Coming on the clouds may need to be the next uh, biblical theme. I'm not opposed to that. I'm yeah. not opposed to that. Um, I want to talk about one more commentator before we come to our conclusion, and I think this one's very interesting, and that's because this commentator is C.S. Lewis, or this is C.I. Schofield, excuse me. We just looked at C.S. Lewis. This is C.I. Schofield, and of course, he's the one that wrote this Schofield Reference Bible. Now, he was a dispensationalist. 
he bought into John Nelson Darby's teaching on this, and therefore he was a futurist in this passage. Here's what he said. He said um, the primary definition of this generation or generation is race, kind, family, stock, breed. He says all the lexicons agree with that. That the word is used in this sense because none of these things, in other words, for example, the worldwide preaching of the kingdom, the great tribulation, the return of the Lord in visible glory, the gathering of the elect occurred at the destruction of the temple by Titus 8070. The promise is, therefore, that the generation, nation, or family of Israel will be preserved unto these things, a promise wonderfully fulfilled to this, to this day. Now, I just want folks to understand and see that this is a straw man. He's using a straw man here. And what, he, what he's doing is classic eisegesis. He's saying, since we already know these things didn't happen, and to bolster his case that they didn't happen, he strayed from biblical language, and he said things like this. He said, the return of the Lord in visible glory. Now, Mr. Schofield, my question to you, where does Matthew 24, before verse 34, promise that we will see the Lord return in visible glory? He's adding to the text. And when you add to the text to say, see, this didn't happen, that's called a straw man. He's not accurately representing Matthew 24 up until verse 34, proving that it didn't happen. And now that he's built that up and saying, see, the visible return of the Lord didn't happen, then we know this hasn't happened. So now we know this generation has to be a future generation. I just want people to see how the bias is interpreting the text. Rather than saying, this is what Jesus is saying. Now, maybe we should go back through Matthew 24 and see if there were famines in the first century. Were there earthquakes in the first century? Were, were, there, were there wars that were out of character? It's all, by the way, all the, the book of Acts. Hmm? The book of Acts. Yeah. Yes, maybe this will also be helpful for folks as we get into this topic a bit more. Look up the Pax Romana, Romana, Pax Romana, however you want to say it, P-A-X Romana. It means the, the worldwide peace of the Roman Empire, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. This is a long period of peace in our, in our human history. It's the cultural backdrop that we see when Jesus comes on the scene in the first century. Rome really did rule with an iron fist. And by the Roman Empire, by and large, although it was made up of a lot of different nations, the Bible refers to Spain and Italy and so forth. But the, all of it's the Roman Empire, the whole world. And it's in the backdrop of this piece called the Pax Romana that Jesus prophesies and says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. That means nothing today. It meant a bunch in the first century. So the only time people will say, well, how do we know what war he's talking about? And we, oh, is it Ukraine, Russia? Is it, is it, you know? It was in the backdrop of the first century where that actually meant something because there were no wars. It's a very famous time of peace. So anyway, I just want folks to see that he says in his quote here that the word is used in this sense because, now he gives you why he's saying it means this, because none of these things have happened. That's the reason he's doing it. So this is really backwards kind of thinking. This is, this is eisegesis at best. Let me go ahead and just state a conclusion here. In conclusion of this, Matthew 24, 34 is not an embarrassing verse at all. It is clear and a remarkable prophetic statement with 100% accuracy. It's a bullseye right at 40 years. Jesus used the phrase this generation exactly how it was used in the books of Moses. I showed that. The Psalms, 
and the Gospels. It's used the exact same way every time. This was a widely accepted view until the mid-1800s when dispensationalism began to take hold of the study Bibles in Bible seminaries. This generation is a reference to the generation in which the speaker is speaking. And this is what you were talking about earlier. This, the word this, is a near demonstrative. If I said, Jimmy, hand me this water bottle, the one that's nearest to me. Now, that, the word that, is a far demonstrative. I'm pointing, hand me that water bottle way over there. If it's the one close to me, I say this. If it's the far one, it's the far demonstrative that. He should have said that generation that would see these things. He didn't. He said this generation. Jesus used the right language to describe the generation in which he was speaking. We should fully embrace this astonishing prophecy that was fulfilled exactly as he stated and is also well-documented by historians. I mean, there's absolutely no reason uh, to take this any other way than Jesus said, except for if you uh, want to skew the evidence of it, you want to skew the results of it. That'd be the only reason not to take this. So I I think this is... um, not even to me is not even considered a biblical theme. Um, this is just this is just what the phrase means. It's not complicated. But because of futurism, because of the rise of that with dispensationalism, this has been fought against because they take it to mean the second coming of Christ, and it doesn't mean that at all. It means a, a coming in judgment, exactly as Jesus said. You guys need to you need to weep and mourn coming on this generation. Hmm. Well, that's great, Ken. I, I imagine this should i mean i i I would think it will because it would it did for me if you want to go back and read what all he's talking about that's going to spark a lot of of uh uh questions i would i would say what's this talking about so i'm sure that we're going to get some comments and i would i would encourage people to put in the comments Okay, well, all these things. Well, what what does this mean then, and what does that mean? And then be patient with us because we will probably be doing most of the things you're going to end up asking are probably going to fit into the category of a biblical theme, and we're going to be breaking down every one of these biblical themes one at a time. So just keep coming back, keep watching. This is really fascinating stuff, and uh, it'll just it'll just blow your mind, really. It's, it's, it's good stuff. The Bible is so fun. The hardest part of Bible study is unlearning what you've learned that's incorrect. If it wasn't for that, it's really not that difficult. Some of the theming stuff we have to work at because we're 2,000 years removed for it. But remember, this is their language. This is how they've heard since they were little. They're familiar with the Old Testament much more than we are. Most Christians are pretty ignorant of the Old Testament. We are more familiar with it. This would be old hat to us. Ken, I used to advise people not to read the Old Testament. Really? Yeah. Wow. I did. I'm like, we're wow. in the New Testament. You don't have yeah. to read that. Yeah. It doesn't relate to us, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm admitting it. I did that. And uh Well, I think I think most pastors are not they're not sure what it's even about. Uh and dispensationalism is a lot to cause for that because they break it up into chunks. They say this is not your mail, don't read it. This is about this. This is about this. And really, they do that with the New Testament, too. I grew up hearing that Hebrews is not for us because it's written to the Jews in the tribulation period. That's what I grew up hearing. The same with James because it says it's written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. <laughs> don't read that. I'm like, my goodness. Now that I know more, I'm going, how is Hebrews not to believers on the side of the cross? It's just absolutely crazy. It's talking yeah. about the New Covenant. Yeah. But, 
Well, Ken, I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Me too.